Hi everyone, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zafsal, the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. So today we have again another special guest. In fact, a good friend of EFG's is Dan Clifton from Strategius. Dan, very well known uh, throughout uh, EFG and certainly one of the most popular guests on the podcast. So Dan, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be with you today. Great. So, Dan, I guess we go straight into it. Uh, midterms coming up. We're we're kind of poised to see what's going. What are what are your key thoughts as we as we head into uh, into the next couple of weeks? Well, you know that here in the United States we have a lot of political volatility. We've changed political parties in seven of the last eight elections, and it's very likely that this election will result in that eight of nine times. So this is the most political volatility we've had in the United States since the end of the Civil War in 1865. It's a pretty bold statement to be making. And that political volatility obviously translates into policy uncertainty. If you have changing political parties every two or four years, when you're, you're cutting taxes, four years later you're raising taxes, or you're doing health care reform and then you're trying to take it away. But clearly there's something going on with the electorate. The U.S. economy has grown, been growing much slower than it historically has since the global financial crisis. And that's where you saw a lot of this political volatility uptake. And so how does that relate to this midterm election? Well, it's very likely the Republicans are going to win control of the House of Representatives. They only need six seats to take over the House of Representatives. Right now, our tracker uh, for how many seats the Republicans are poised to gain is about somewhere between 25 and 30 House seats. Now, the election's still two and a half weeks away. Some of that could change. We can explain what can change between now and then. But clearly, the election has accelerated to the Republicans over the last few weeks. What you see are voters focused on three core issues. They're focused on immigration, crime, and inflation. And this is really the inflation election. The most correlated data point to the election results right now are the retail price of gasoline that consumers are paying. But Maz, this is one of the most uh, unique election cycles I've seen in my 25 years in politics, because usually once the cycle is set, that's where we stay. And this cycle was set for big Republican gains for most of 2021 and the first half of 2022. And the Democrats made enormous progress in being able to neutralize the political environment. And that came from really three areas. First, gasoline prices went from $5 a gallon to $4 a gallon. Second, you had a Supreme Court decision on Roe versus Wade. Uh, which uh, which helped the Democrats increase voter registration amongst younger women. Uh, and then third is that the FBI uh, did a search warrant on Donald Trump's property. And I know that may not sound like it was an important data point, but it was a hugely important data point because it got the country less focused on gasoline prices or crime. And everything in the news was about Trump. And that demoralizes some Republican voters. It energizes Democratic voters. And we had a series of special elections this summer, which were indicating that the Democrats were in a very competitive environment. And so that, that, that's the way we walked into this election cycle in September. And now with many of those other issues off the table for now, you're seeing really the Republicans begin to accelerate here. I would argue that the biggest change in the last three weeks is the consensus moving from a Republican House and a Democratic Senate to a full Republican sweep. 
Now, you can look at the polling data, and the polling data does not show that you're going to see a Republican sweep. But what it does show is that the Republicans are making clear progress in those Senate races. And if you apply a traditional polling error and assume that the undecideds are breaking almost two to one for the Republicans as they are, they should be able to win some of those seats. Since it's a 50-50 Senate, you only need one seat. And uh, the market is saying that the Republicans will get at least one of those seats, if not a couple more. So that's probably where you'll see the most variation in the next two and a half weeks, whether that thesis comes true or not. But the market is now making a bet. And it's really been, last week was really strong event in that, both in the betting odds and on our strategic selection portfolios. Let me unpack some of those some of those thoughts. So, first, um, inflation clearly is the the the, the big debate, and uh, uh, I think you know Biden, the fact that he's kind of let go of the strategic reserves and he's done everything he possibly uh, he even went to Saudi without much success um, to try and sort of get that uh, inflation uh, you know debate sort of won over. Um, what else can he do? <laughs> There's not much else as far as I can see. Yeah. So first, let me say that um, the, so- the OPEC plus deciding to cut production was a huge event uh, because for every seven cent increase in gasoline taxes, historically, the party in power loses one house seat. So if gasoline prices went from, you know, up 35 cents between that OPEC decision and the election, that's the House of Representatives right there. Right. And, you know, that's not... A, a in stone number, but it's a rule of thumb. And so the president had to counteract that. And the president announced that he's going to release 15 million barrels of oil out of strategic petroleum reserve. There's a lot of people here in the United States who will say that won't make much of a difference, but it will make a huge difference. What if I told you Exxon and Chevron were going to produce 15 million barrels in a short period of time, right? So um, th- at the very least, it keeps the price increase from really wrapping, wrapping up. And um, maybe it even kind of slows down the price increases and leads to a small decline. That's one uh, one thing that he can do. I, I think what we really need to be focused on is whether there's going to be some sort of FBI action against Donald Trump in the next couple of weeks. This is the six-year anniversary of James Comey, the FBI director, opening up Hillary Clinton's emails If you remember right before the 2016 election, it changed the whole conversation into the election. So you have a debate about whether this is politics or whether this is true. I only bring that up to you because, you know, Friday afternoon, there was a report that the FBI uh, believed that there's classified information around China and Iran missiles at Trump's house. Um, You know that I read that and I'm like, why does somebody want me to know that? Why does somebody want me to know that two and a half weeks before the election? And while I'm not forecasting it, it's just something that we're keeping an eye out on because it could change the entire narrative going into the election. I also think you'll see the president getting more hawkish on China. Uh, China is a bipartisan issue here in the United States. It's, it's really interesting to see governor candidates, you know, at the state level talking about anti-China rhetoric. And then, you know, you think about that, uh, uh, you know, you see the president touting his existing accomplishments. The idea of passing the Inflation Reduction Act and getting uh, getting price controls on prescription drugs and trying to get credit for things that they've done. My view is voters are a what have you done for me lately? They want to know what you're going to do for them, not what you did for them. And telling them that they should support something that they don't feel is never a winning political issue. But we think that will be part of the narrative to try and change this around before the election. 
So another point you meant was around crime, which uh, which has obviously been uh, a hot topic, certainly since Democrats uh, come in. Uh, any sort of good news on, on that really and or is this something again that um, is going to kind of whittle away and die in, in time? From the beginning of September all the way through the day before the election, I travel across this great country. So I'm in just about every major city. And what it looks like is a pre-1994 American city where you did have lots of crime. And, and really over the last, I don't know, 25 years or so, a lot of that crime had gone away, and there's reasons for that demographic, policing. But, you know, these are cycles, and they swing in, in both directions. So crime is a real issue. And I think the Democrats thought that they were going to be in a better position with the, uh, with the abortion issue after the Supreme Court ruling. And they did make some progress. But, you know, when people are worried about crime in their neighborhood, and just here locally, um, you know, you see it everywhere. We were, we were, in, we were in Dallas, Texas last week. People were talking about crime in their neighborhood in the meeting. It's very, very localized, and it's very, very emotional because people are scared. If you hadn't had to think about it in 25 years, it is an issue. If you don't think it's an issue, I would just go pay attention to what some of the ads are for incumbents that are in trouble. Incumbents mean people who are elected in office. The governor of New York cut an ad on crime this weekend, uh, then agreed to debate her opponent, which she hadn't done before. It tells you that the crime issue is really working against her in a state that should be overwhelmingly Democrat. So the political power of the issue is really, really strong. And it's strong because the issue is real. My experience is that crime is a long tail. And that means that it just doesn't go away in one or two years. It takes some time for, for the uh, toothpaste to go back into the tooth into the tube. And, uh, you know, this could be a five to seven year issue, so to speak, if, if, uh, if and it just requires a lot of policy changes and it takes time to do that. Yeah. Well, certainly his impression, something from here, there's that, um, the, um, the, uh, Democrats will say the Biden, Biden administration has been maybe soft on crime, right? I think that's the issue. Uh, lots of people will be let go and so on and so forth. Um, that, that's just last one before we go, into the implications for financial markets is uh, Roe v. Wade. You also mentioned that as, again, a really hot topic that came up um, uh, and uh, you know, it's forced lots of these young women coming into the potential voting population. Uh, kind of any thoughts on that? Do you think that's another one that is probably going to be live while all the way till the, the, the next election? Absolutely. I have never seen a mobilization of women voters in my 25 years in politics like I saw in the first three months after that court decision in late June. Okay, we this is the stuff that we look at. How many people are registered? And uh, and then if they are registered, are you going to be able to vote? And the, and the best way to think about this is the Republicans were winning their special elections by 12 or 13 percent in every place, New Jersey, Virginia, Texas. It didn't matter what the state makeup was. The Republicans were really rolling until that Supreme Court decision. And then what you saw was the Supreme Court decision happened and a massive voter mobilization of young women. How do we know it's young? My colleague Courtney can go into the age in some of these states of the voter registration and just these huge gaps of women under the age of 40 relative to men. And then as soon as you get to like 40, 50 years old, the the disparity between voter registration just ends, right? So like this just didn't happen on accident. And then you gotta say, do they vote? 
and we had five special elections in the month of August, and the entire 13% advantage of the Republicans had just evaporated. Now, I, I, I can remember sitting there in mid-August going, if the election was held today, the Republicans would lose the House of Representatives, which was like a 20% probability in the betting markets that day, right? So you look at that and you saw massive, massive change happen. But the issue has died out now because I think people had fear, fear that if they have a miscarriage, they wouldn't be able to get it fixed, fear that there weren't gonna be any type of options. And now after three or four months, you realize there's probably a few states that are gonna actually ban abortion, a few states that are going to have 15 to 20 week restrictions and most of the country is going to stay status quo because why would you even want to have that political fight and so there's a little bit more ease here and no stories of people you know being in really bad situations which which you know i i look at that and that means that it's just kind of dropped down in the top tier of the issue i'll give you another example we had a horrific school shooting in texas in may or june i mean just horrific. And the gun control issue over the summertime was just a really powerful issue. And that's just not even showing up on the radar screen today. So, you know, but again, what, what's in front of you when you vote is what matters. And what's in front of voters today is crime, inflation, and what's going on at the southern border with illegal immigration. And those just generally benefit Republicans. And that's why the Republicans are in a much stronger position going into the final two weeks here. Just picking up on the immigration point, because uh, that's also important. And we've got labor shortages. We've got work shortages. You know, we're seeing it. Some of that inflation data coming in the employment stats. What's uh, um, is immigration? Um, I mean, it's a solution, isn't it, <laughs> for a lot of these issues? What's the what's the prognosis there? Yeah, so first, let me say that if this was, you're, you're getting all the downside, but none of the upside. And that means that people are coming in, but there's no real effort to move them into any type of working. Because one, they're here illegally. And two, um, you know, we don't even, the people are just spread out all over. I, I was at an event a couple of weeks ago and a guy said to me, you know, why can't I just pull up my, my van and put people in there and have them go to my restaurants and work where I can't find any workers? But the key issue is that over time, I think that there's a plan that we're not going to do comprehensive immigration reform here in Congress. Republicans tried it with George W. Bush and failed. Barack Obama tried it uh, with Democrats and failed. And, you know, now you just got to force the issue. Uh, that's scary, scary to a certain extent, because you don't, you don't know who's coming through your border. Um, but my sense here is that if the Republicans win the House and Senate, the first thing they're going to do is seal off that border. And then once you seal off the border, then you can have a more positive conversation about legal immigration and starting to fill up some of those labor shortages that you're going to have. And again, that assumes that the unemployment rate isn't going to go up. The Fed would obviously like the unemployment rate to be going up. But if you have three and a half percent unemployment, you could probably get to some deal in three years from now on getting some sort of immigration reform through for both skilled and unskilled workers, because you are going to have those labor labor shortages, but you have to have the illegal immigration portion fixed first, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, again, I, I, I just like to look at kind of how stocks are trading in, and we call them the immigration stocks, the private prisons, the scanning detectors, you know, they're all ripping here. 
under the idea that um, that uh, the Republicans are going to win both chambers and put more money into border enforcement, so to speak. So it's a very interesting way that the financial markets think about these things as you see the politics play out. Yeah. So let's go into so what are your portfolios telling us at the moment in terms of? Uh, yeah, you know, listen, I guess I I I think the. Th- the wisdom of the stock market has exceeded the polls in multiple election cycles. This is something you and I have spoken about repeatedly. And I'll just give you this cool data point. On May 2nd, our Republican portfolio relative to the Democratic portfolio, right, we, we run them relative to each other, was giving about an 85% chance of the Republican sweeping on election day. This is on May 2nd. On May 3rd, you get this immediate downgrade of the Republican portfolio. That was the day that there was a leaked version of the Supreme Court ruling, something that had never really happened in history on the Roe versus Wade. So the market immediately assumed that this was going to create a more neutral political environment. Then it went up a little bit and then it downcasted all summer as the data started to get worse for the Republicans. So for most of September, it was giving the split government view. Republicans win the House, Democrats win the Senate. And that really began to change about two weeks ago because you saw an interview with the Pennsylvania senator, uh, the Senate candidate from, from, uh, from the Democrats. It was a pretty bad interview, and he was favored to win. And I think the market looked at it and said, there's a low chance that this guy's going to win, and began to price in the idea that the Republicans could keep Pennsylvania, and then possibly win Nevada or Georgia or some combination of both of them. And so today, I mean, our portfolio is giving about an 80% chance of the Republicans winning both chambers. The betting markets are at about 67%. We're somewhere between 60 and 65. We'd like to see some improvement in the Republican numbers before we get more confidence in that. But the equity market has really kind of made this bet that this is where we're we're headed. Uh, I look at it and I say to myself, okay, you know, even if you don't get a full Republican House and Senate, and you get some sort of divided government, the policy mix isn't going to change that much. I mean, in some areas it will, but the net effect of it is that you're going to get less federal spending next year. That's going to make Jay Powell's job a little bit more easier to do. Uh, But if you get a Republican House and Republican Senate, that's where you'll start getting more spending on immigration reform, more spending on defense, and probably a big build-out of the energy infrastructure. And that's that's where the portfolios are focused on right now. And that's where the movement and the stocks have been in the portfolio. So it is around the energy context, but not necessarily renewables in there? Or, or is, are, are renewables uh, Republican favorites or Democrat favorites? Yeah, so we, we have them in our Democratic portfolio. And if right, you notice, right. the renewables have really been the pure play on how the market is reading the election. They've, they've been under significant pressure over the last 30 days, uh, particularly as the Republican numbers have began to improve. And I think some of this is a bit overdone uh, because if you, uh, if you have an all Republican government, they're still going to have to pass Joe Biden's veto pen. And climate change is a real big legacy issue for President Biden. And so uh, my sense is that the Republicans are going to be they're going to have little ability to really effectuate some of the recent expansions of solar and wind and energy credits that went into place. The market will figure that out post-election. If you see a scenario where the Republicans are not going to sweep, 
the sector that's probably going to benefit the most from that is renewable energy, because now you have a Democratic Senate, which really ensures nothing can happen there. And you'll start to see uh, you'll start to see those stocks begin to improve. So that's something we're keeping an eye on. Uh, but I, I tend to think that it's a little bit overdone where the Republicans are going to focus is, uh, you know, trying to get on the debt ceiling. Uh, we're going to have to raise the debt ceiling next year. They're going to try and reduce some discretionary government spending uh, in areas that may be a little bit more politically palatable than going after the president's legacy issues. And so that's going to be the big issue uh, is that whether the Congress is going to be able to raise the debt ceiling next year. And so what you could see here is a very aggressive November and December where we have the election, people are like, it's over. And then you start to see, um, you know, Congress come together, do a big increase in defense spending for Ukraine, uh, maybe a year forward of Ukraine spending to get through the winter. You start to see the debt ceiling, talk about possibly raising the debt ceiling before the Republicans take over. And then you got some expiring tax credits that got to get done. So I, I think that the market might be a little bit uh, complacent about what can happen in the lame duck. And it becomes much more palatable to do something in lame duck if you get a Republican House and a Democratic Senate. And I should say this, and I should have said this a little while ago, but it's very likely we're not going to know the winner of the Senate until mid to late November or possibly even December. And the reason for that is that it's going to probably come down to Pennsylvania and Georgia. Pennsylvania doesn't start counting its uh, early votes until after the polls close on election night. It takes them about 10 days to do that. I don't know why it takes so long, but it's a broken system. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Florida does not do that. We'll know, every, we'll know everything in Florida at 10 o'clock at night. Um, but then also Georgia requires 50% of the vote for a winner. And it's probably unlikely that the Republican or Democrat will get 50%. So then we'll go to a runoff, which is in early December. So you're just going to have this election possibly hanging over the landscape Congress is going to look at that and say, what's our unfinished business? Let's get it done. And if the Republicans win the House, which we expect we do, we're probably going to go into some sort of gridlock in January and people are going to want to get as much done before that January 3rd date kicks in. At the beginning of the year, um, when you presented to us, you talked about the the um, midterm effect in terms of stock markets being particularly weak ahead of um, the um, midterms and then obviously has a pop afterwards. How are you feeling about that uh, at the moment? Well, I was right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were right. Yeah, was absolutely. right on the way down. I don't know if uh, it's it going was... to be right on the way up. But, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, let's let's just take a step back, right? On average, you get about a 19% intra-year decline in the midterm election year. If you look at the other years, you only get about a 12 or 13% decline. So there's something special happening in that midterm election year. And look, we think that, one, the Fed has to tighten a lot in the midterm election year because presidents do fiscal policy the year before. We did a lot of fiscal policy. Fed's doing a lot of tightening. You get into silly season during midterm election years where you ship illegal immigrants to Martha's Vineyard or you put a subpoena on an ex-president's house. It's always stranger how we do crazier stuff in midterm years than presidential election years. I don't know why that is, but it's something that always happens. And usually you see the president's approval rating weaken considerably in those midterm election years. So you get this like lack of leadership or faith in that leadership. And that all happens. What we notice is that you get these huge rallies on those down years. One year later, you're up by about 32% from the midterm bottom. And if I could really jinx it for you, 
The S&P 500 has not declined in the 12 months following a midterm election since at least 1942, which is the first year that we have data for. So you get an 80-year perfect track record. And why we think that happens is not an accident. We think that the market uh, sees that a president gets wiped out in his midterm election. We're headed for one of those right now. And the president wants to get better fiscal and monetary policy. And the market begins to anticipate that better fiscal and monetary policy. Uh, I, I just thought it was wild on Friday that the Wall Street Journal is leaking out that the Fed may start slowing down here on monetary policy. <laughs> After the Fed saying, boom, 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 boom. And those leaks to the Wall Street Journal are not some reporter's idea. They are, they are high-level leaks that go to that Wall Street Journal reporter, right? And then you got the president talking about doing a child tax credit. And you got the Republicans talking about these business credits that start to expire, and you can see, like, it's all right there. The pattern that you historically see coming out of midterm election years. And you're starting to see the equity market try and turn here, which is interesting to us. Now, you're in the UK, so you had a front window to fiscal policy in an era where the bond vigilantes are back for the first time in 25 years. There's a lot of differences between the US and the UK, but Congress has to be careful because we are about to face an explosion of interest cost on the debt because of those higher interest rates. We've had free servicing of the debt for like 20 or 30 years, lots of debt increases, but no increase in the cost because of low interest rates. We now know that that interest rate cost is gonna hit us considerably next year and there's no way out of it. And now you're gonna go load up a couple hundred billion dollars of spending when the natural buyers of treasuries are just out of the market right now. China, Russia, OPEC, uh, Japan, the Fed, you know, that's a lot to make up there. And we know that the politicians are no longer in control. For the first time in 25 years, the bond markets are in control. So Congress just needs to be careful on how they're proceeding. So we're a little bit more restricted this time on the fiscal and monetary policy side that always made that midterm election effect work. Doesn't mean that it's not going to work. It's just going to be harder to get to that thesis. Exactly. I think uh, interest rate burdens are definitely going to work the other way. Um, we haven't had that. We haven't had that for the last 12 or 13 years. It's been all easy for the spending, um, but uh, certainly it becomes much, much harder. Um, I guess looking at the, the level of debt and interest rates to say, I don't know, four, four and a half percent, a significant amount of the deficit is just going to go to interest service cost. Absolutely. Right. So the current budget assumes a Fed funds rate of less than 1%. We mm. know we're going to end this year at four. So that means they're 300 basis points off on the Fed funds rate. For every one-tenth of 1% 1 you're off is $10 billion of short-term costs. So that means they're $300 billion off. Just to start. And, every, you know, we... we we say every every 75 bips at the Fed is another $2.5 trillion fiscal bill we're doing. Just goes to interest, not tax cuts or consumer aid or federal spending or defense. It just goes to interest. So what you'll start to see is that we haven't had to do any of these fiscal austerity bills really since 1990. Uh, Bill Clinton did one just like on his own in 93, but we used to have to get in the room constantly in the 80s and the 90s, early 90s and do these fiscal bills because our interest cost was 3% of GDP or 18% of tax revenues. We're, we're like half that right now, but we're going to quickly get close to those levels. And 
at that point, then you're just waking up to be a member of Congress to pay interest on the debt. You say, I don't want to do that. I want to spend money on schools and roads. And then, you know, this is, again, I just feel like everything we're talking about, fiscal policy, uh, monetary policy, first time we got to get inflation out of the system since 1982, geopolitics, the first time we have this kind of multipolar world developing since the Berlin Wall came down. It's all pointing to a 70s, 80s type-like environment, which are lower PEs on stocks, slightly higher inflation, slightly higher interest rates, and probably a bias for value over growth. But, you know, people could disagree on that last point. But the first three points seem solid in terms of where we're headed right now. No, exactly. I completely, completely agree with that. Um, just want to pivot to China and um, uh, policy around China. Clearly, Biden's had to do uh, quite a lot here. I guess he makes um, even Trump look relatively pale in comparison in terms of policy response. Uh, what are your thoughts around uh, the US-China and, uh, and obviously uh, Taiwan? Yeah, so first, let me say I got really animated on your 2020 podcast right before mm-hmm. the election because yeah. you could see Biden's odds go up and China would outperform Vietnam or when Trump's odds would go up, the reverse would happen. And that was the market's way of saying that the decoupling is going to happen, but it will be happening faster under Trump than Biden. And then Biden came in and Biden sat down. I guess they got their first national security briefings and they were like, whoa, wait a minute here. Our you know, spheres of influence are being challenged. There's a push to go for a reserve currency. And there's been a very hostile uh, relations between the Biden administration and China almost since they first came in. And I think about Biden and Trump, there's not much similar to them. They don't like each other. But when you see their policies doing the same thing, you have to say that that's now the official U.S. government policy. And I look at the cast of people who could be president in 2024, and I ask myself, are they going to be able to reverse what Trump and Biden have been doing, or do they want to? The answer is no. So this is, this is a major change. China probably started this 20 years ago. The U.S. is just catching up to it, uh, largely because they were distracted by other factors like terrorism and, and, and other issues. And now they're realizing that this is, this is the whole game right here. And you're seeing an increasingly bipartisan effort to go after China. Let me give you three, let me give you three big data points. One, in July on a bipartisan basis, Congress voted to bring the semiconductor industry home, $75 billion. We now have eight locations in the United States that are building these semiconductor facilities. Number two is that the president just put restrictions on chip and semiconductor equipment making in China. Like that, This is much bigger than going after Huawei and ZTE the way that Trump did. And third, as I mentioned or as I'm mentioning, we're going to get in the lame duck session of Congress, and it's very likely that there's going to be a bipartisan amendment that passes to the defense bill that puts a national security review on all outbound investment of critical technologies in the U.S. Now, it will start off limited, but these don't shrink. They grow over time, and it will be very bipartisan. And so you're increasingly seeing the United States saying that we want to limit where our products are going, limit where our technology is going. And that means that we're entering Cold War 2.0 here, where it is a multipolar world. And for every action, there's a reaction. 
some of this was accelerated by the Russia-Ukraine war. Some of it has been accelerated by other factors like Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan. But it feels like it's moving at very, very rapid speeds. And the question is whether this was posturing ahead of Xi Jinping getting a new term and the midterm elections happening. What we were watching very closely for was whether there was going to be a Xi-Biden meeting in mid-November uh, at the G20. Uh, the White House does not seem very uh, optimistic that there's going to be a meeting. They've lost some contact with the Chinese. That may change starting today. So something we'll be monitoring. Maybe they meet on the sidelines or something and there's not a formal meeting. But, you know, the U.S. launched this kind of limit on chips right before the Chinese Congress met. Uh, and uh, it seems like this is a bit more long lasting. I like to look at the campaign commercials that candidates are running to get a feel for what's important. And I have been struck by how many Democrats at the governor's level, state level, are running ads against China. And so this is really starting to set in and it requires a framework change uh, overall, even if you start to see relations kind of ease here a little bit, it doesn't take away from the strategic importance that both sides see of what's going on. Yeah, I think that'd be my kind of observation is that uh, you've got midterms on one end, you've got President Xi's confirmation third term on the other end, you know, both playing to their own partisanship, if you like, within their own countries. And, um, you know, maybe it would be uh, maybe an organized stand down once those two big events are kind of out of the way because they're important for both of them, I guess. Um, obviously, but it but it's still going to be a hot topic issue, I think, for the foreseeable future. I think I completely agree with you that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just take a step on. I mean, can you imagine if you get in a Fed pivot and better China relations with the United States? Right. You can kind of put all that together and say, well, you know, maybe we went a little bit too far to the downside here. But, uh, you know, again, I, I just keep in context here is that there's some concern about the reserve currency in the United States. That's not a topic that we usually broach. I was in Canada last week and people were talking to me about nuclear war, you know, because of what's going on in Ukraine. You know, these are just topics that we haven't had to talk about. So the risks here are a little higher, even in light of some of these other issues. And you just, you know, low probability, high impact events, you just got to kind of factor that into your investment process. The best way to describe it, low, low probability, high impact. Um, moving then on to sort of, um, I guess, questions I had really for you on on the view of the UK from the US. Um, you, you, you alluded to it, we're probably the canary in the coal mine to anybody who wants to go out and freely spend. And as the bond vigilantes uh, come in and you know, teach everybody a lesson, um, other than that, anything else that you think is particularly interesting from over the pond? Yep. Yeah, so so I, I would just say that politicians on both sides of the aisle are trying to use the UK experience as a warning to their other side here. So for the Republicans, they're arguing that the politicians are no longer in control. And that means that you can't have all this spending when your interest costs are going up. So that means that when the Republicans take over, they're going to use that to argue for less spending. The Democrats are going to argue differently, and they're going to argue that the UK just served as a warning not to have a big fight over the debt ceiling and hold the full faith and credit of the United States uh, over the head of politicians to be able to extract spending concessions. So you're going to see the UK debate feature very prominently here. Again, I go back to, I go back to what China is arguing 
China is going to argue that they have a superior model to the Western model, that there's no political volatility. If there is, you get removed from a meeting or something like that. But like here, we may not know the results of who won the U.S. election and the U.K. just had a prime minister for 40 days. You know, you know what I mean? So they're going to say that's an unstable system. And democracy is messy in resolving these fiscal issues. The authoritarian model can just get these things done and, you know, minimize the volatility. I, I don't buy that argument, but you can see that's going to be the global takeaway from this kind of multipolar world is that the U.S., U.K. are models for um, a different model, uh, so to speak, uh, which, again, I, I don't agree with, but you could see that that's where they're headed. Just alongside that, um, the thoughts around kind of emerging markets are one of the things that's certainly going through our minds, certainly over the next sort of you know twenty or thirty years, is around this sort of notion that um, uh, America's kind of relationship with the with the emerging markets, i.e., non-China emerging markets, is has got to be kind of fixed in some way because obviously that's where. U.S. companies are going to be selling them the most goods. You know, they're going to sell them to India or Indonesia or Pakistan or, you know, those countries. Philippines are going to have huge populations. Um, they don't want to leave that just to China. I, I would agree 100%. Look, the, the, there's this talk about onshoring, this theme of onshoring here in the United States. And I think it's a real theme that's happening because I'm a policy person. And I could see it from the policies that are being enacted. They're trying to encourage that. Eventually they will. But if you're an investor and you have a, you're managing a pension fund for private sector workers and you had a small allocation to Russia uh, and then you, went to, you went home for the weekend and you woke up on Monday and it was gone, you know, in February when the, when the war started. You have a lot more money in China. If you're a business owner, you got a lot more fixed assets in China. And I just think that there's this decision making that's going on after watching some of these world events that you don't want to get caught off sides in China the way you did in Russia. And so there's a diversification that's taking forward, both from a business and an investment perspective. That's why I often say, you know, Vietnam, China was the decoupling trade in 2020, but you can do the same analysis for India. India is so well positioned here to be able to take a large portion of some of this, uh, some of this manufacturing that was happening. They're not as well developed. They don't have the same level of infrastructure and they haven't been doing it as long as China. China's just really good at it. And But I do think that you'll start to see those shifts and it, it will take years. This is not an immediate shift. Then you've got the concept of friend shoring. I look at what's going on in Europe. We're gonna be short energy in Europe for a couple of years. It's a tough situation. Uh, my sense here is that maybe some of the European manufacturing is gonna to have to move to Pennsylvania and Ohio to be close to closer to some of these energy sources that we have here in the United States. It's a different model. It's uh, not going to be easy to do that model. But that's the way you start finding where you can be able to pull resources. And you mentioned before we were talking about immigration. You know, people talk about onshoring here. I don't have enough workers now. What's going to happen when I want to build factories here? Who's going to build the factories? Who's going to work in the factories? Why I'm so optimistic on the U.S., though, is that we're an extremely dynamic environment and we have a lot of entrepreneurism, a lot of dynamism in our labor market. And I believe that you'll start to see a shift in how many people go to college versus technical school here, if that's the case, and there's a true onshoring. So I just think we're at a, a pretty big inflection point here and I don't view it as bad. 
But we, for 40 years, operated under the idea cheap labor, cheap energy, cheap goods. And that's probably reversing here a little bit, where it's now going to be more expensive energy, more expensive goods, more expensive labor, but more domestically and built amongst friends in a multipolar world, so to speak. Mm, that's a very good point. Um, I guess the last question, Dan, um, what are the things that nobody's talking about that you're thinking about? <laughs> so in the short run, I would argue that it's the lame duck session of Congress. You know, if, mm -hmm. if you do a $200 billion bill, you say, well, that's $200 billion. But if you put that on times 10, it's $2 trillion, right? And so what if I told you right at the beginning of this call, we're going to do large fiscal policy with 100% uncertainty? Mm -hmm. You'd be like, there's no way. I'm, I'm in the UK. Did you just see what happened? You know, so um, I, I think that's the first one. The second one is that the structure of the U.S. election system is okay. It's the process that is broken. And there's just a lack of trust in the election system right now based on some of those processes. I know how to fix them. I just don't know if we have the political will to fix them. But if you have another election where people are debating the election results while China is sitting there saying, look, our model is superior, you have to be very careful of that, particularly as we go into 2024 with the next presidential election. And then third um, is that we believe that just out of pure markets is that energy security will wind up being a much bigger issue once you get through the political rhetoric. There are people I know who've worked on climate change issues for 20, 25 years. They've dedicated their life to it. They've done amazing work in that area. And just the nature of that's changed, a high interest rate environment, a high energy price environment, a shortage of energy. And so energy security is going to be one of the more dominant themes over the next few years. And that requires a balance between your clean energy goals and the transition. If you fail to manage the transition correctly, you're going to have elected officials throughout Europe and the United States that are going to make Donald Trump look pretty moderate from a populism perspective, right? So it's critical that you get that right. And then finally, uh, what I'm watching most closely, which I think is uh, the logical takeaway of everything that we talked about, is an emerging alliance between OPEC, Russia, and China. Uh, China is the largest customer to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia now has a partner in Russia and OPEC plus. If you were to get some sort of um, pricing of the oil in a non-U.S. currency, that would be a very big event. I don't think that's in the short run, but that's what we're watching over the medium to longer term, is that that, that old security alliance between the U.S. and Saudis begins to disintegrate, and it moves uh, Saudis, the pendulum, over into the other direction. That would be a very big event for world events. And I guess what I'm saying is that we just think that Saudi Arabia kind of sits at the most important axis in world politics today because they can kind of move the needle in one direction or not based on all the relationships that they have. And I don't think that's discussed a lot. And certainly much more pro-Republican than uh, Democrats, that's, that's <laughs> what I'm saying for sure. Yeah, I guess an understatement. Um, um, I guess Definitely. the final question is, and, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're recording this on the on the twenty fourth of October, twenty twenty two, got two more years before we talk about the U.S. election. Um, any sort of very early thoughts um, about who do you think is going to get the nominations for the next uh, election? 
I do. And look, we have a we have a rule that we don't talk about the midterms before the uh, the presidential before the midterm. And we threw that rule right out this year because the 2024 election is impacting the 2022 election. And, and that's amazing to us. I mean, Trump put up four Senate candidates that if they don't do well, then that's going to reflect poorly on him. And it means that the Republicans aren't going to control the Senate and voters want to win. Right. Voter, voters are going to look for a winner. So what you're seeing is Donald Trump is putting raising and putting his own money into these four Senate races. He wouldn't be doing that if he wasn't serious about running for president. And he said this weekend that he's probably going to run. He hasn't declared because that would trigger fundraising limits on him. But you have to assume that Trump's going to get in the race. There's an amazing codependence between Joe Biden and Donald Trump where they need each other because without the other, the other one does not exist. And so Biden's argument is if Trump's going to be the nominee, then only he can beat him because he'll avoid a big fractious uh, Democratic primary. Now, again, if Biden suffers major midterm election losses, I think the party is going to be very worried about the direction that they're going under him and will be looking to replace him on the ticket in 2024. There is a chance, though, that you have a Trump versus Biden race, let's say even if it's 20 percent. If you get that, I would anticipate you'd see something very rare in American politics, and that is a unity ticket Republican and Democrat third party challenge up the middle, which could be Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Lisa Murkowski from Alaska. That would only work in a Trump versus Biden race, but something that I think is beginning to emerge. There's been a lot of money raised, and they're figuring out how to get their names on the ballot. They call it the in case of emergency break glass plan, right? Be ready for it in case it does happen. Now, Trump is likely going to run, and that means that the question is, is there going to be a primary against him? Again, watch the 2022 midterm election results to see how that's going to impact 2024. There is a governor running in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis. He's probably going to win by 10 or 12 points in what is usually a very close Florida election. And he's going to argue that Trump closed down the economy, shut down the schools, listened to Dr. Fauci. And he did not do that in Florida and created the Florida miracle. I think that's an extremely powerful election message for Republican primary voters. The key here is how many people get in the race. Because if I'm Donald Trump, I want 10 people in the race. I want to dilute the anti-Trump vote as much as I can. And so if it was a DeSantis-Trump race, I'd say DeSantis would beat him. But I just don't know how many people are going to get in that race. And, uh, you know, Pence, Cruz, um, you know, there, there are a lot of different names circulating around. So that's something to be mindful of. Let's just say Trump wants to spend more time with his family. You know, something I, I never thought I'd hear him here. But another way of saying he doesn't run. You'll have a pretty robust Republican field. And if in that case, I would say it would either be Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia, who most people don't know right now or Governor DeSantis as the nominee. But I'm watching Tim Scott, Senator from South Carolina, all the governors. And again, if the Republicans do bad, worse than expected in this election, because right now the the market is like, yes, you're going to win. If they don't win and they surprise to the downside, I think Republican voters will move to the governors at the state level that have had success rather than Washington politicians. The Democrats are just as interesting the Democrats are, uh, you know, they have a sitting vice president. You have people saying that they're going to openly challenge her for that nomination. That's a huge issue if you get that. But she'll, Vice President Harris will be right there, right at the top. 
you, you look at who's the number one surrogate on the campaign trail for Democrats, it's Pete Buttigieg, who's the transportation secretary. Uh, Governor Newsom said over the weekend that he was going, to, Governor Newsom's from California, said he's going to sit out his term, like stay his whole term as governor. But he had been saying that he was going to run for president for weeks here. So, you know, you could say you're going to stay and then things change in two years from now. But, you know, you look at that. And if I was to make the boldest prediction that I could make to you, uh, my guess is that the next president is going to be younger than the previous two presidents here in the United States, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's not so bold. <laughs> no, I'm just joking with you when I say that. But, um, but if, you, if you take a more serious case for it, I believe the voters of America are looking for a cycle of competency now. And they're saying that there's going to be a real premium and they want youth, they want policy uh, expertise, and I think this really started with Zelensky in Ukraine when he showed up on American TV screens, where he's sort of a national hero, at least viewed from here in the United States. And, and, and voters in both parties are saying, I want one of those. And so when you look at the candidates that are getting the most traction for 24, they have various Zelensky-like uh, qualities in both parties. And, and again, I mean, this, this was, became sort of reality TV politics in the US over the last few election cycles. Now the stakes are much clearer to the American voter. And the American voter had been ahead of the politicians on some of the national security and economic risks that they were facing. And today, uh, I think that's going to translate into to a more, more serious 2024 vote at the end of the day. We'll still have to go through the circus. Uh, and by the way, it's a lot of fun to go through the circus. I love the <laughs> campaigns more than anything. But I do think that you need to start having serious results here. And I do think that that's where America's headed for 24. Yeah, no, absolutely. It'll be certainly be interesting to see uh, uh, post midterms how that pans out and uh, who's going to start rising. But uh, your comments are very, very interesting indeed. Well, um, Dan, thank you very much for uh, taking the time. That was, again, super interesting. Uh, we will no doubt watch your commentary as we head into the next couple of weeks and then obviously the post-match interview as well. Uh, but uh, uh, it'll be uh, super interesting uh, as ever talking to you. Uh, look after yourself. Have a great time as I know you will. You're, you're gearing up now for the next couple of weeks. Uh, and thank you very much for coming on the podcast again. Thank you for having me. Uh, so that wraps us up for this week. Um, so thank you very much for listening. Uh, next week, we actually have uh, Stefan Gerlach, who's going to be coming. I'm off to travel to Asia and Australia. And uh, so we'll have um, Stefan bring a special guest, um, who no doubt will be very interesting. And then we have uh, Dan Murray for the following week. So thank you, and I'll speak to you again soon.